Hello, my friends. This is your Definitely Storytime host, Jamie. And if you're here, it's Definitely Storytime. So let's settle in and get comfortable, or whatever it is you prefer doing while you listen. And let's begin. We are reading Edgar Allan Poe's Part 4 The Mystery of Marie Roget It is not my present design, he said, to dwell upon the first and second of these extracts. I have copied them chiefly to show you the extreme remissness of the police who, as far as I can understand from the prefect, have not troubled themselves in any respect with an examination of the naval officer alluded to. Yet it is more folly to say that between the first and second disappearance of Marie there is no supposable connection. Let us admit the first elopement to have resulted in a quarrel between the lovers and the return home of the betrayed. We are now prepared to view a second elopement— if we know that an elopement has again taken place, as indicating a renewal of the betrayer's advances rather than as the result of new proposals by a second individual. We are prepared to regard it as a making up of the old amour rather than as the commencement of a new one. The chances are ten to one that he who had once eloped with Marie would again propose an elopement rather than that she to whom proposals of elopement had been made by one individual should have them made to her by another. And here let me call your attention to the fact that the time elapsing between the first ascertained and the second supposed elopement is a few months more than the general period of the cruises of our men of war, had the lover been interrupted in his first villainy by the necessity of departure to sea and had he seized the first moment of his return to renew the base designs not yet altogether accomplished, or not yet altogether accomplished by him, of all these things we know nothing. You will say, however, that in the second instance there was no elopement as imagined. Certainly not, but are we prepared to say that there was not the frustrated design Beyond St. Eustache and perhaps Bouvet, we find no recognized, no open, no honorable suitors of Marie. Of none other is there anything said. Who then is the secret lover of whom the relatives, at least most of them, know nothing, but whom Marie meets upon the morning of Sunday, and who is so deeply in her confidence that she hesitates not to remain with him until the shades of the evening descend amid the solitary groves of the Barrière de Roule. Who is that secret lover, I ask, of whom at least most of the relatives know nothing, and what means the singular prophecy of Madame Roger on the morning of Marie's departure? I fear that I shall never see Marie again." But if we cannot imagine Madame Roger privy to the designs of elopement, may we not at least suppose this design entertained by the girl? Upon quitting home, she gave it to be understood that she was about to visit her aunt in the Rue de Drome, and Saint-Eustache was requested to call for her at dark. 
Now, at first glance, this fact strongly militates against any suggestion. But let us reflect. That she did meet some companion and proceed with him across the river, reaching the barrière de Rule at so late an hour as three o'clock in the afternoon, is known. But in consenting so to accompany this individual, for whatever purpose, to her mother, known or unknown, she must have thought of her express intention when leaving home, and of the surprise and suspicion aroused in the bosom of her affianced suitor, St. Eustache, when, calling for her at the hour appointed, in the Rue de Drome, he should find that she had not been there, and when, moreover, upon returning to the pension, with his alarming intelligence, he should become aware of her continued absence from home. She must have thought of these things, I say. She must have foreseen the chagrin of St. Eustache, the suspicion of all. She could not have thought of returning to brave this suspicion. But the suspicion becomes a point of trivial importance to her if we suppose her not intending to return. We may imagine her thinking thus, I am to meet a certain person for the purpose of elopement, or for certain other purposes known only to myself. It is necessary that there be no chance of interruption. There must be sufficient time given us to elude pursuit. I will give it to be understood that I shall visit and spend the day with my aunt at the Rue de Drome. I will tell St. Eustache, not to call for me until dark. In this way, my absence from home, for the longest possible period, without causing suspicious or anxiety, will be accounted for, and I shall gain more time than in any other manner. If I bid St. Eustache call for me at dark, he will be sure not to call before, but if I wholly neglect to bid him call, my time for escape will be diminished, since it will be expected that I return the earlier and my absence will the sooner excite anxiety. Now, if it were my design to return at all, if I had in contemplation merely a stroll with the individual in question, it would not be my policy to bid St. Eustache call, for calling, he will be sure to ascertain that I have played him false, a fact of which I might keep him forever in ignorance by leaving home without notifying him of my intention, by returning before dark, and by then stating that I had been to visit my aunt in the Rue de Drome. But, as it is my design never to return, or not for some weeks, or not until certain concealments are effected, the gaining of time is the only point about which I need give myself any concern." You have observed in your notes that the most general opinion in relation to the sad affair is, and was from the first, that the girl has been the victim of a gang of blackguards. Now, the popular opinion under certain conditions is not to be disregarded. When arising of itself, when manifesting itself in a strictly spontaneous manner, we should look upon it as analogous with that intuition, which is the idiosyncrasy of the individual man of genius. In 99 cases from the 100, I would abide by its decision, but it is important that we find no palpable traces of suggestion. The opinion must be rigorously the public's own, and the distinction is often exceedingly difficult to perceive and to maintain. In the present instance, it appears to me that this public opinion in respect to a gang has been superinduced by the collateral event which is detailed in the third of my extracts. 
All Paris is excited by the discovered corpse of Marie, a girl young, beautiful, and notorious. This corpse is found bearing marks of violence and floating in the river. But it is now made known that, at the very period, or about the very period, in which it is supposed that the girl was assassinated, an outrage similar in nature to that endured by the deceased, although less in extent, was perpetrated by a gang of young ruffians upon the person of a second young female. Is it wonderful that the one known atrocity should influence the popular judgment in regard to the other unknown? This judgment awaited direction, and the known outrage seemed so opportunely to afford it. Marie, too, was found in the river, and upon this very river was this known outrage committed. The connection of the two events had about it so much of the palpable that the true wonder would have been a failure of the populace to appreciate and to seize it. But, in fact, the one atrocity, known to be so committed, is, if anything, evidence that the other, committed at a time nearly coincident, was not so committed. It would have been a miracle, indeed, if, while a gang of ruffians were perpetrating, at a given locality, a most unheard-of wrong, there should have been another similar gang, in a similar locality, in the same city, under the same circumstances, with the same means and appliances, engaged in a wrong of precisely the same aspect at precisely the same period of time? Yet in what, if not in this marvelous train of coincidence, does the accidentally suggested opinion of the populace call upon us to believe? Before proceeding further, let us consider the supposed scene of the assassination in the thicket at the Barrière de Roule. This thicket, although dense, was in the close vicinity of a public road. Within were three or four large stones forming a kind of seat with a back and a footstool. On the upper stone was discovered a white petticoat, on the second a silk scarf, a parasol gloves and a pocket handkerchief were also here found. The handkerchief bore the name Marie Roget. Fragments of dress were seen on the branches around. The earth was trampled, the bushes were broken and there was every evidence of a violent struggle. Notwithstanding the acclamation with which the discovery of this thicket was received by the press, and the unanimity with which it was supposed to indicate the precise scene of the outrage, it must be admitted that there was some very good reason for doubt. That it was the scene, I may, or I may not, believe, but there was excellent reason for doubt. Had the true scene been, as Le Commerciel suggested, in the neighborhood of the Rue Pave Saint-André, the perpetrators of the crime, supposing them still resident in Paris, would naturally have been stricken with terror at the public attention thus acutely directed into the proper channel. And, in certain classes of minds, there would have arisen, at once, a sense of the necessity of some exertion to re-divert this attention, and thus the thicket of the Barrière de Roule having been already suspected, the idea of placing the articles where they were found might have been naturally entertained. There is no real evidence, although Le Soleil so supposes, that the articles discovered had been more than a very few days in the thicket, while there is much circumstantial proof that they could not have remained there without attracting attention during the twenty days elapsing between the fatal Sunday and the afternoon upon which they were found by the boys. They were all mildewed down hard, 
says Le Soleil, adopting the opinions of its predecessors, with the action of the rain and stuck together from mildew. The grass had grown around and over some of them. The silk of the parasol was strong, but the threads of it were run together within. The upper part, where it had been doubled and folded, was all mildewed and rotten, and tore on being opened. In respect to the grass having grown around and over some of them, it is obvious that the fact could only have been ascertained from the words, and thus from the recollections, of two small boys. For these boys removed the articles, and took them home before they had been seen by a third party. But the grass will grow, especially in warm and damp weather, such as was that of the period of the murder, as much as two or three inches in a single day. A parasol lying upon a newly turfed ground might in a single week be entirely concealed from sight by the upspringing grass. And touching that mildew upon which the editor of Les Soleils so pertinaciously insists that he employs the word no less than three times in the brief paragraph just quoted, is he really unaware of the nature of this mildew? Is he to be told that it is one of the many classes of fungus of which the most ordinary feature is its upspringing and decadence within twenty-four hours? Thus we see at a glance that what has been most triumphantly adduced in support of the idea that the articles had been for at least three or four weeks in the thicket is most absurdly null as regards any evidence of that fact. On the other hand, it is exceedingly difficult to believe that these articles could have remained in the thicket specified for a longer period than a single week, for a longer period than from one Sunday to the next. Those who know anything of the vicinity of Paris know the extreme difficulty of finding seclusion, unless at a great distance from its suburbs. Such a thing as an unexplored or even an unfrequently visited recess amid its woods or groves is not for a moment to be imagined. That anyone who, being at heart a lover of nature, is yet chained by duty to the dust and heat of this great metropolis, let any such one attempt, even during the weekdays, to slake his thirst for solitude amid the scenes of natural loveliness which immediately surround us. At every second step he will find the growing charm dispelled by the voice and personal intrusion of some ruffian or party of carousing blackguards. He will seek privacy amid the densest foliage, all in vain. Here are the very nooks where the unwashed most abound. Here are the temples most desecrate. With sickness of the heart, the wanderer will flee back to the polluted Paris as to a less odious, because less incongruous, sink of pollution. But if the vicinity of the city is so beset during the working days of the week, how much more so on the Sabbath? It is now especially that, released from the claims of labor or deprived of the customary opportunities of crime, the town blackguard seeks the precincts of the town, not through love of the rural, which in its heart he despises, but by way of escape from the restraints and conventionalities of society. He desires less the fresh air and the green trees than the utter license of the country. Here, at the roadside inn or beneath the foliage of the woods, he indulges unchecked by any eye except those of his boon companions, in all the mad excesses of a counterfeit hilarity, the joint offspring of liberty and of rum. I say nothing more than what must be obvious to every dispassionate observer, 
when I repeat that the circumstance of the articles in question having remained undiscovered for a longer period than from one Sunday to another, in any thicket in the immediate neighborhood of Paris, is to be looked upon as little less than miraculous. But there are not wanting other grounds for the suspicion that the articles were placed in the thicket with the view of diverting attention from the real scene of the outrage. And, first, let me direct your notice to the date of the discovery of the articles. Collate this with the date of the fifth extract made by myself from the newspapers. You will find that the discovery followed almost immediately the urgent communications sent to the evening paper. These communications, although various and apparently from various sources, tended all to the same point, viz. the directing of attention to a gang as the perpetrators of the outrage, and to the neighborhood of the Barriard Rule as its scene. Now here, of course, the situation is not that, in consequence of these communications, or of the public attention by them directed, the articles were found by the boys. But the suspicion might and may well have been that the articles were not before found by the boys, for the reason that the articles had not before been in the thicket, having been deposited there only at so late a period as at the date, or shortly prior to the date, of the communications by the guilty authors of these communications themselves. This thicket was a singular, an exceedingly singular one. It was unusually dense. Within its naturally walled enclosure were three extraordinary stones, forming a seat with a back and a footstool, and this thicket, so full of art, was in the immediate vicinity, within a few rods, of the dwelling of Madame de Luc, whose boys were in the habit of closely examining the shrubberies about them in search of the bark of the sassafras. Would it be a rash wager, a wager of one thousand to one, that a day never passed over the heads of these boys without finding at least one of them ensconced in the umbrageous hall and enthroned upon its natural throne? Those who would hesitate at such a wager have either never been boys themselves or have forgotten the boyish nature. I repeat, it is exceedingly hard to comprehend how the articles could have remained in this thicket undiscovered for a longer period than one or two days and that thus there is good ground for suspicion, in spite of the dogmatic ignorance of Le Soleil, that they were, at a comparatively late date, deposited where found. But there are still other and stronger reasons for believing them so deposited than any which I have as yet urged. And now let me beg your notice to the highly artificial arrangement of the articles. On the upper stone lay a white petticoat, on the second a silk scarf, scattered around were a parasol gloves and a pocket handkerchief bearing the name Marie Roget. Here is just such an arrangement as would naturally be made by a not-over-acute person wishing to dispose the articles naturally. But it is by no means a really natural arrangement. I should rather have looked to see the things all lying on the ground and trampled underfoot, in the narrow limits of that bower, it would have been scarcely possible that the petticoat and scarf should have retained a position upon the stones, when subjected to the brushing to and fro of many struggling persons. There was evidence, it is said, 
of a struggle, and the earth was trampled. The bushes were broken, but the petticoat and the scarf are found deposited as if upon shelves. The pieces of the frock torn out by the bushes were about three inches wide and six inches long. One part was from the hem of the frock, and it had been mended. They looked like strips torn off. Here, inadvertently, Le Soleil has employed an exceedingly suspicious phrase. The pieces as described do indeed look like strips torn off, but purposely and by hand. It is one of the rarest of accidents that a piece is torn off from any garment, such as is now in question, by the agency of a thorn. From the very nature of such fabrics, a thorn or nail becoming entangled in them tears them rectangularly, divides them into two longitudinal rents at right angles with each other, and meeting at an apex where the thorn enters. But it is scarcely possible to conceive the piece torn off. I never so knew it, nor did you. To tear a piece off from such fabric, two distinct forces in different directions will be, in almost every case, required. If there be two edges to the fabric, if, for example, it be a pocket handkerchief, and it is desired to tear from it a slip, then and only then will the one force serve the purpose. But in the present case, the question is of a dress, presenting but one edge. To tear a piece from the interior, where no edge is presented, could only be effected by a miracle through the agency of thorns, and no one thorn could accomplish it. But, even where an edge is presented, two thorns will be necessary, operating the one in two distinct directions, and the other in one, and this in the supposition that the edge is unhemmed. If hemmed, the matter is nearly out of the question. We thus see the numerous and great obstacles in the way of pieces being torn off through the simple agency of thorns. Yet we are required to believe not only that one piece, but that many have been so torn, and one part, too, was the hem of the frock, another piece was part of the skirt, not the hem. That is to say, was torn completely out through the agency of thorns from the unedged interior of the dress. These, I say, are things which one may well be pardoned for disbelieving. Yet taken collectively, they form perhaps less of reasonable ground for suspicion than the one startling circumstance of the articles having been left in this thicket at all by any murderers who had enough precaution to think of removing the corpse. You will not have apprehended me rightly, however, if you suppose it my design to deny this thicket is the scene of the outrage. There might have been a wrong here, or more possibly, an accident at Madame de Luc's, but in fact this is a point of minor importance. We are not engaged in an attempt to discover the scene, but to produce the perpetrators of the murder. What I have adduced, notwithstanding the minuteness with which I have adduced it, has been with the view, first, to show the folly of the positive and headlong assertions of Les Soleil, but secondly and chiefly to bring you, by the most natural route, to a further contemplation of the doubt whether this assassination has or has not been the work of a gang. We will resume this question by mere allusion to the revolting details of the surgeon examined at the inquest. 
it is only necessary to say that his published inferences in regard to the number of the ruffians have been properly ridiculed as unjust and totally baseless by all the reputable anatomists of Paris. Not that the matter might not have been as inferred, but that there was no ground for the inference. Was there not much for another? And that has been our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll consider telling your friends and family, and if you have the means, providing listener support. I also have a Patreon, and I have merchandise available on Teespring. Links are on the homepage. I thank you for choosing Definitely Storytime. <laughs>